on February 9th, 1971, at 6.01 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, a magnitude 6.6 .6 earthquake struck Los An the Los Angeles area where both Lauren and I grew up. Of course, she wouldn't be born for the next 11 or 12 years. But <laughs> caused widespread destruction and 26 deaths. The epicenter of the quake was about 35 miles north of downtown at a depth of seven or so miles. And although I was just 10 and a half at the time, I vividly remember this earthquake for at least two reasons. The first had to do with my family's reaction during the 60 or so seconds that the earth was shuddering. While the rest of us were basically keystone copping it around the house, including the dog, which was just running wildly in circles and barking at who knows what. We were all trying to get into a door frame because we'd been told that apparently the most secure place to be when the house crumbles around you is in a door frame. But my father just lay calmly there in bed with his hands folded across his chest. Never moved. Saying later that if he were going to die, he preferred to die in bed. Now, my dad was a World War II and Korean War Army veteran. So he had probably earned the right to remain calm and learned how to remain calm the hard way. The other thing that stands out to me about this earthquake is the way it majorly affected my Aunt Betty, or as we used to say in Southern California properly, Aunt Betty. Huh. By the way, I took a dialect test in the New York Times this week, 25 questions. Hmm. It told me that I was from Southern California or Rockford, Illinois. No, you have to know that I grew up in Southern California, and my parents were both born in Rockford, Illinois. It was that precise. Don't ever give anything up to the New York Times. Anywho, the earthquake majorly affected my Aunt Betty's Presbyterian Church two valleys over and about 25 miles closer to the quake's epicenter. And although there was no visible damage of any significance with the sanctuary, a later inspection revealed that its foundation had shifted to such a degree that they had to close the church and rebuild the sanctuary because it was no longer safe. To any casual observer, it seemed like everything was fine. In reality, however, it was unfit for use and had to be torn down and rebuilt on a new and solid foundation. Now, I just want to warn you right now, there is an analogy coming. In Psalm 11.3, King David asks this question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? He's obviously drawing on a physical reality to describe a spiritual one. If the failure of a building's physical foundation spells the end for the entire building, 
The failure of God's people to maintain the foundation of truth means disaster for their spiritual health and flourishing. It's not a stretch then to relate this reality to the church. If the foundation of the church is shaken, can the church survive? I believe the answer is an emphatic no, not for long. And if we are attentive to it and honest, we can see signs of the church's crumbling all around us. I'm not a culture warrior in particular, so I'm not going to go into all of the evidence that I have for this. But some of it is stunning. But what is the foundation of the church? And because the stakes are so high, I believe, answering that question correctly is critical. And fortunately for us, St. Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 10 and 11 does precisely this. He writes, By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder, and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Today's gospel reading is, I believe, the most important and foundational passage that we can read about Christ at the eve of the new year because it answers the why question. It perfectly makes the case for why we must, if the church is to long survive, take the birth, life, death, teaching, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus so seriously every other Sunday of the year and every day of the year thereafter. Our bedrock belief, not about who Jesus was, but about who Jesus is, undergirds everything about how we navigate both our faith and the world. And this is, feels more important today as we, <laughs> as we ready to move into a permanent home. Thanks be to God. Interestingly, the Gospel of John is never the focus of a particular year in the three-year lectionary cycle. Matthew is the focus of year A, which was the year we just finished before Advent. Year C is Luke. And the Gospel of Mark is year B. That's where we'll primarily spend our time this year. We do, however, come to the Gospel of John several times throughout the year, and the whole gospel is read publicly over the course of three years. This passage, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 18, is read every year on the first Sunday of Christmas. It's that foundational. The gospel of John's emphasis is on the last three years of Jesus' life, and especially on his death and resurrection. It never talks about Jesus' birth, but it does give us great insight into his origin, who he is. It's not written just to tell a story, but to help us believe in Christ as God incarnate, very God of very God, as it says in the 
Athanasian Creed, and in so doing, inherit eternal life. John states his purpose very clearly in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. But we shouldn't get the notion that the book is therefore primarily for unbelievers. Jesus himself said in chapter 15, verse 6, that believers must also abide in him. So when John says these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name, he's writing to awaken faith in unbelievers and to sustain faith in believers and in that way lead both to eternal life. John, as an eyewitness, was part of these infinitely important events. Five times in the gospel, we find this beautiful and touching, if not slightly humorous, self-referential words des describing himself, the, 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 the disciple whom Jesus loved, as if we didn't know. It's not very subtle, John. By the way, I just have to say, whoever snuck the letter B into the word subtle deserves some serious kudos. It's incredibly subtle. Jesus chose his apostles, John being one, as his representatives. He was with them. He, he taught them. He sent them. And he gave to them through the Holy Spirit divine guidance in the writing of the scriptures for the foundation of the church, as it says in Ephesians 2.20. We believe that the gospel of John, therefore, is the inspired word of God. And these words, word of God, bring us to the first words of John's gospel. John 1, 1 through 3, in the beginning. What does that sound like? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. First, we should pay attention to the word, Word. In the beginning was the Word. The most important thing to know about this word is found in verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and, and truth. In other words, the word is Jesus. This is a book about the life and work of the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, the man. As, as, as it says in 1 John 1, 1, that John knew and saw and heard and touched with his hands. He had flesh and blood. He ate and drank and got tired, and John knew him intimately. So close was their relationship that we're told in, in chapter 19, verse 26, that Jesus' mother, the beloved Mary, lived with John during the last part of her life. What John's doing in verses 1 through 3 is telling us the most intimate thing about Jesus that he can. 
He wants us to have in our minds fixed and clear from the beginning of this gospel, the eternal majesty and deity of the creator and the creator rights of Jesus Christ. That is the point of verses one through three. He means for us to read this gospel absolutely awestruck that the man at the wedding and, and at the well and on the mountain is also the creator of the universe. This is the structure of the book. This is the way John wrote, the way God meant for him to put it together. John is saying from the first words, I want to fix in your mind unwaveringly on the foundational identity of this one who became flesh and dwelt among us so that there is no mistake, no misunderstanding. Jesus is not one among many. John means for us to read every word of this gospel with the clear knowledge that Jesus Christ was with God and was God. And that the one who humbly and willingly laid down his life for sinners is the one who created the universe. But why did he choose to call Jesus the word? I believe John calls Jesus the word because he had come to see the teaching of Jesus as the truth of God and the person of Jesus as the truth of God in such a unified way that Jesus himself in his coming and working and teaching and dying and rising was the final and decisive message or word of God. John tells us in chapter 18 verse 37 that Jesus came to witness to the truth and in chapter 14 verse 6 that he was the truth. Both his witness and his person were the word of truth. He said in chapter 8, 31, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. And he said in chapter 15, verse 7, abide in me. When we abide in him, we are abiding in his word. And when we are abiding in his word, we are abiding in him. He said twice in chapter 5, verse 36, and in chapter 10, verse 25, that his works were a witness about him. So he is... In his working, he was the word. In Revelation 19.13, which was also written by John, he described Jesus' return this way. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is, do you know it? The word of God. That's his name. Two verses later, in Revelation 19.15, John says, From his mouth comes a sharp sword, a, a metaphorical way of saying Jesus judges the nations by the power of the word that he speaks. The sword of the Spirit, tells us in Ephesians 6.17, by the power of his word, he is so... the. But the power of this word is so united with Jesus himself that John says that he doesn't just have the sword of God's word coming out of his mouth, but he is the word of God. So as John begins his gospel, he has, he has in view all the revelation, all the truth, all the witness, all the glory, all the light, all the words that come out of Jesus in his living and teaching and dying and rising. And he sums up all of that revelation of God with the name, he is the word. First, final, ultimate, decisive, and absolutely true and reliable 
word of God. Jesus, God incarnate, is God's foundational and decisive word to the world. So beyond that, what does John want us to know about the word? Well, he reveals at least four specific things about him. The time of his existence, the essence of his identity, his relationship to God, and his relationship to the world. First, the time of his existence. He says in verse 1, in the beginning was the word. The words in the beginning are identical in Greek to the first two words in the Greek Old Testament, in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. That's not an accident. Because the first thing John is going to tell us about what Jesus did is that he created the universe. That's what he says in verse 3. So the words in the beginning mean before there was any created matter, there was the word, the son of God. John begins this gospel by locating Jesus, the Christ, the son of God in relation to time, namely before time. He is eternally pre-existent. Jude acknowledges this reality in his doxology in Jude verse 25. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Paul says in 2 Timothy 1.9 that God gave us grace in Christ before the times of the ages. So before there was any time or any matter, there was the word, Jesus Christ. Secondly, John wants us to know the essence of his identity. Verse 1 at the very end, the word was God. So one of the distinctive marks of this gospel is that the weightiest theology is delivered in the simplest words, and they could not get simpler, and it could not get weightier. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, Jesus Christ, was and is God. And we join all true Christian churches around the world in worshiping Jesus Christ as God. We fall down with Thomas, as he did in John 20, verse 28, and confess with joy and wonder, my Lord and my God. And we hear the Jewish leaders in John 10 verse 33 say, it's not for good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy because you being a man made yourself God. With all Orthodox Christians throughout history, we join them in, in, in insisting, no, this isn't blasphemy. It's simply who he is, our Savior, our Lord, our God. So thirdly, Jesus' relationship to God Verse 1, middle of the verse, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is the heart of the central and historic doctrine and mystery of the Trinity. The Word, Jesus Christ, was with God and was God. He is God, and he has relationship with God. He is God, and he is the image of God, perfectly reflecting all that God is and standing eternally as the fullness of deity in a distinct person. There is one divine essence and three persons. Two of them are mentioned here, the Father and the Son, and we see the Holy Spirit then at Jesus' baptism just a few verses after this passage. Since it says in 1 Corinthians 13, 9, and 12, we see in the mirror dimly, 
and we know only in partial ways, we shouldn't be too surprised that this remains a mystery to us. And you know, most of us grew up, many of us grew up in the 20th century when mystery was a thing of the past. We, we eschewed mystery. But we must embrace this mystery. We mustn't give in to the temptation to diminish or discard it because it's ineffable in the words of St. John Chrysostom or incomprehensible in the words of Athanasius. It's too important. If Jesus Christ is not God, he could not accomplish your salvation, pure and simple. It says that in Hebrews 2, 14 and 15. And his glory would not be sufficient to satisfy your eternal and God-given longing for new discoveries of truth and mystery and beauty. To throw away the deity of Jesus Christ is to throw away one's soul and with it the joy of the age to come where we will join him in reigning in the new heavens and the new earth. The foundational, of importance, the foundational importance of Jesus' deity cannot be overstated. So we've seen the time of his existence, in other words, before all time, the essence of his identity, the word was God, and the, his relationship to God, the word was with God. Finally, Jesus' relationship to the world. In verses 2 and 3, it says, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. The word who became flesh and dwelt among us, taught us, healed us, rebuked us, protected us, loved us, and died for us. Also, he created the universe. We must retain the mystery of the Trinity from verse 1 and not leave it when we get to verse 3. All things were made through him. Yes, there was another acting through the word in creation. God was, but the word is God. He was the father's agent or word in the creation of all things. But in doing it, he was God. Jesus is your maker. Arianism, the fourth century heresy, and some world religions and Christian, quote unquote, cults of today insist that Jesus was not God, was not eternal, not eternally begotten, but rather that Jesus was created. He was the first of creation, the highest of the high angels, or as the Arians, not the German Arians, <coughs> those who followed Arius in the fourth century said it, there was when he was not. But John wrote, verse 3 precisely in a way that makes that impossible. He didn't just say all things were made through him because someone could conceivably say, and as Arius did, yeah, but all things doesn't include himself. It includes everything but himself. So he was created by the Father, but then with the Father, Jesus created all other things. But John didn't leave it at that. He said, in addition, in the last part of verse 3, and without him was not anything made that was made. What do the final words that was made add to the meaning of without him nothing was made? I know I, this probably is getting a little confusing. It just means this, without him, not anything made that was made, that was made. Simply that they, 
Alright, now I'm getting <laughs> Which is not hard. But simply this is what it means. They make explicit and emphatic and crystal clear that anything and everything in the category of made, Christ made it. Therefore, Christ was not made. If he made everything, he was not made. That was a real simple way to say it. Because if you do not exist, you cannot bring yourself into existence. Christ was not made. And that is what it means to be God. And the word Jesus was God. I know, I know that is a ton of theology packed into a relatively short time. Relatively short. But the story told in the first few verses of the Gospel of John sets the table for every week of readings to come. Simply put, as I said in the beginning, <laughs> see what it did there? <laughs> as I said in the beginning, they answer the why question. Why we see the words of Jesus as the very words of God, and we treat them as such. Was Jesus, Jesus a rabbi? Yes. Was he a prophet? Yes. Was he a great ethical teacher? Of course. His words are the greatest body of ethical teaching in human history. Was he healer and restorer and forgiver? Yes, yes, yes. But John wants us to know today, from the first words of his gospel, that supporting and sustaining any of those categories, all of those things, he was and is God. And this is the one who it says in Philippians 2, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born into the likeness of men, and being found in human form for us and for our salvation. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's how much he loves you. <laughs> and you know what? There is nothing, literally nothing that you can do to make him love you more. And nothing that you can do to make him love you less. He can only love you as he is. Perfect. Perfectly. Right now, in this moment, and we're going to spiritually and tactilely experience that love again today as we gather entirely at his invitation around his table. And I'm really glad we're here for that. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.